Hi, morons. How's it going? <laughs> so, so, welcome to this week in Mormons. We're still using that term, I think. It's great to have all of you here this week. I am the erstwhile host of this show and founder of This Week in Mormons, and I'm back for this week. My name is Jeff Openshaw. And I'm Jared Gillens, erstwhile yes, rotating occasional co-host. <laughs> so. Erstwhile everything. There's the name of the episode. Yep. Erstwhile podcast. Let's hope not, folks. So uh, nice to be back with you. When did we last do it? What did we do? Is Jared, was it December or January or something we said we did this last It's been a while. I don't it's know. It's been a few months. Anyway, so Kurt, thanks for having us back. Everyone, I'm sorry I called you morons, but I have, I've always thinking of inventive ways to kick off the show, and I don't think I've ever said that across 600 plus episodes. And Jeff's, you know, so. Jeff's been having a week, so you know. I've been having a bit of a week. I was telling Jared, I was like, you know, either this show, this episode will be kind of like a nice soothing, it'll be a nice soothing balm to me. A nice, a nice distraction from some of the stresses of the week, or I'm just gonna just just take it out on all of you. I'm just gonna just def- just reflect, just put it all on you. That's we all it. know Jeff to be a very abusive type, so brace That's yourselves. That's me. That's me. Hey, amen to me and all my. You know, if this gets me out of my calling, that's okay then. Anything to get me out of my calling. Um, Saying that publicly, it's only about three months till the bishop gets released, folks, so it's crunch time. Either I am thanked for my service as a counselor, and they send me on my merry way. That's the hope. But, I mean, Jared, I don't know if you dealt with this when you were in the bishopric, because you guys moved before that. I think they did a reorganization. But was it ever in the back of your mind knowing, like, if I'm here when the bishop gets released? Like, you know, at minimum, you're like, you're on a list. You know, at minimum, you're going to be discussed, even if it's for 30 seconds. Like, you know, you're at least on that sheet of paper for people to talk about. I know, I, I know what you're talking about, but you know I, mean? I, I didn't experience that because I actually, I, <laughs> I, I, uh, I asked to be released because I was, uh, I was pursuing a career in seminaries and institutes oh, at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so I needed, uh, I was at a point in that pre-service process where I needed to have a seminary teaching calling for, uh, right. you know, not only from my own experience, but to, you know, to apply the things that they were teaching me as far as teaching methods and stuff like that, but also, uh, I needed to be observed. And so, yeah, so I, 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 I was sad cause I really loved, uh, the bishopric that I served in. They were a great group, but yeah, you had a good, but then I was like, I am pursuing this career, which, you know, after two years of pre-service and hard effort, I <laughs> did not pan out to be a career and never will. Because policy, current policy is that if you did if you did the process once, you can never do it again. Is that so. for real? Yeah, and they actually changed that. Like, bef- we like preach a- repentance and second chances, everyone, <laughs> but not. No, the idea is there. There is just it is a high demand job. There's a lot of people that want to work in seminaries and institutes, and so it used to be like, and they changed this like a year or two before I got into it. Oh. But it used to be that you could like, you know, kind of flunk out or not be chosen or whatever. And then you could just re-enroll and hope. <laughs> yeah. Keep is this the, the sad, incredible Hulk music? That sad piano. Thank <laughs> you for the anyway, so yeah, they changed the policy before I started into the, into the system. And, and I, I, guess- I made it to the end. I got, I mean, I was at the point where I was either, I was going to get an offer letter or not, you know, and I, and I, got not so i can't believe they would not want you i mean i know it's heavy demand thank you I, find, I appreciate that like like you're genuinely not going to find as many people who are as thoughtful and well read and educated and considerate about what they're doing than you it's not to, it's not to denigrate any of the other wonderful people who enter that system but like no, no I, I appreciate yeah. that but i mean there's, there's more i mean you know and and to me like i think you know yeah having 
gospel knowledge and having teaching skills are, are the, you know, top things that I was like, you know, really thinking those were my assets. But on top of that, not to say I wasn't good at this too, but kind of really yeah. the main thing they're looking for is how you engage with the youth. Like, Oh, they, sure. Yeah. That's like, that that's their top criteria. And then it's teaching skills. All and, that matters and is then, cool and memeable. And <laughs> right. that's all that matters. Right. We could talk about, anyway, um, we could talk about some famous examples of that, but um, we, and we have, we have on this show anyway, but uh, so we, it, it is in that order. It's one, how do you engage with the youth? Two, how good are you at teaching, especially the method that they want you to use of teaching? And then third is, oh, you have some gospel knowledge. You, <laughs> you can, you know, you, you, you know how to use good resources to do research and anyway. Yeah. So it's essentially uh, how well can you fellowship and keep these kids active right. through high but school? But the other thing too, That's it's cool. kind of like, uh, you know, there's a, like joining the foreign service or even, you know, applying to a state bar. Like there are mm-hmm. a certain number of slots every year and, yeah, sure. um, and it changes every year and it's mostly based on, okay, how much has seminaries and institutes expanded? Are there new high schools that need seminary teachers, whatever? And also it's how many people have retired. Mm. And since I was going into the, I my, the end of my process was right at the beginning of COVID right, and part of COVID, if you all will remember, was, uh, you know, you know, things like crises like that often make the stock market take a big dip. And so I like part of like, what may have happened and we'll just never know because they don't tell you why you didn't get selected. But uh, it may have also just been that there just weren't as many openings because a lot of people who were probably on track to retire suddenly saw their 401k take a nosedive and say, Oh, never mind, I'm, I'm not. And so who knows if it had been a different year, I might've filled one of their slots. Do you think the uh, almost net zero rate of like church growth rate, the rate of replacement we have in the U.S.? I mean, I I know it keeps things kind of static in a sense, right? Like, I mean, I don't know how much growth we're getting in that in that case. I'm not sure because, because again, like it's not just about church growth; it's also about community growth. Like I said, you know, so if like a, you know, if a Idaho Falls builds another high school, or if you know, whatever Kaysville, Utah builds another high school, whatever, and they build a new seminary building. Well, you need to fill that with seminary teachers. So it's- now, now, obviously, you wanted to make this a profession, so this might be you might be the wrong person to ask. But release time seminary. I mean, are we cool with this? Um, I I understand. I've read a lot about the pros and cons, and you know, I you and I uh, did not grow up in the quote unquote Zion area of the you know we were outside of the Jello Belt, and so we did uh, early morning, correct? Yep. 6 a.m. Yeah. So that's the thing. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> you know, I think that maybe, you know, we probably built some character doing that early morning seminary, but I think there's a lot of disadvantages of that too, uh, where you, you know, you're exhausted yeah. and, uh, you know, high schoolers famously don't get enough sleep already. And so telling them, Hey, get up at five 30 and get to the church real early. And then also, you know, especially now, and I think this started in the nineties, but has only increased, more and more students are taking zero hour classes. And so uh, if you don't live in a place with a place with release time, you miss out on opportunities, potentially either you miss out on the opportunity, to, you know, to be in mm-hmm. a select band ensemble or whatever, whatever your zero hour class was, or you choose that and you don't do seminary. So yeah. I, I think, I think there's good arguments for release time. 
and that's what I like because I did zero period too in high school. So I went straight from seminary and hightailed it to the school because I think seminary got out at six forty, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, if memory serves, I think zero period started at like six fifty or six fifty five. So right. we only had like ten to fifteen minutes to get from the church over to high school and ready for band stuff. That's what I was doing in zero period. But uh, I don't know. I'm grateful. It did build character, and I I liked that I wasn't getting rid of one of my like elective periods in high school to go to seminary. It's not to knock seminary, but like I think about the courses I took in high school that would have been something like release time instead. I mean, I took ceramics, I took guitar courses, I got to take extra academic courses. Like I got to fill it with interesting programming for myself. I guess it maybe you know maybe it works differently for other people. I I, uh, I don't know if Utah's you know edu- public educational system is suffering or if there's any data on that. Like from the lack of. Every, all the kids, all the LDS kids have like fewer electives or anything like that. Like, is that an issue? I don't know. But uh, I don't know. I don't it's know. a strange thing to me. I do find it strange, though, only in the sense that we have been pushing more to have a unified church approach on a lot of things over the past five years. I think ditching scouting is one of the most notable examples that mm-hmm. we had a unified youth program, men's program. But we still definitely have two different systems for seminary, just depending on the density of Latter-day Saints in an area. And whether. And it seems like release time is like the ideal, and we do early morning for all the folks where there just aren't enough church members to justify something along those lines. Right. Well, and that's not just justification for the program, but you also have to get like a school district and, and, and in some cases yes, like a state legislature too. on board. So, yeah. um, Never so, going to happen in the godless states where we grew up, my friend. Uh, Washington State, that liberal – just kidding. Um, I come from the land of land of crying communists. life. <laughs> Unless you're from Bakersfield, but otherwise, yeah. <laughs> you're in the Central Valley. It's it's your Central Valley. It's Kevin McCarthy all the time, but elsewhere, you know, it's just uh, yeah, 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 California. Yeah, but I haven't been there for a long time. UC oh, Davis, famously right wing. Yeah, <laughs> UC Davis, great veterinary program at UC mm-hmm. Davis. That's mm-hmm. what they're most famous for. I was gonna so, say it's an agricultural school. Yeah, they do a lot, like Cornell. Yeah. You know, it's the same idea, <laughs> like Cornell. Well, I'm uh yeah well I'm sorry your dream didn't pan out but it is interesting I like I have it's having okay. never never and having having never and ne- and I will never apply and try to join that professional ecosystem I enjoy learning about it from someone who has and has been and I like I said it was two years and it was a lot of work to get to a point where they're just like you have not been offered a position and you and, and, and you know and they didn't say this in the letter and you can never apply again it did kind of feel like oh that was a quick shut door shut in my face. But that being said, I did enjoy, I think I am a better teacher for it. Um, um, I, I made, you know, I met some really cool people along the way. Um, you know, I don't, I don't regret any of it all, but I do in hindsight now, you know, that's been coming on three years since, uh, I didn't make it into the program and I don't know. I, there's a part of me that's kind of thinks that that was for the best. Like maybe that would have taken my life on a different path that, might not have worked as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be where I am. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly, sir. Exactly. Uh, well, that's cool, man. I mean, good updates. I'm going to dive in here. Do it. To one of my... I, I love this story because I have lived it. Now, you might have seen this in your awards. The Church News finally dr- dropped an article about it today, the day we're recording here on Friday. Um, but it actually happened about two weeks ago. So there, a letter came out to church leaders over at the letters portal and this and that, but an update went out to the Gospel Library app. As long as you have version 6.5 or newer and most of your auto updates should have happened by that point. Like when this came out, I looked in the app and I was not there yet. I actually had to wait a day. And You might have to uh, 
uninstall and then re, uh, reinstall. Something like that. Yeah. But, but, but these updates are very cool because there's a, there's a bunch of new experiences in the Gospel Library app, and it's designed to kind of get the word all unified on the same page. And there's a few of these. So the main one I want to talk about, I'm actually going to jump around uh, in purpose, but the main one I was excited about, sacrament meeting hymn numbers. Okay, so now members of the bishopric or others who have a, a relevant calling along those lines can go to the app and go down to callings. And if you have a music-related calling, you can actually input the hymns that'll be coming up for your sacrament meeting. And there it says, you know, opening hymn, it lays out opening hymn, sacrament hymn, other, like if you're doing an intermediate hymn, closing hymn. And you can even add more than that. If for some reason, if you're doing a meeting with more music, then, you know, more power to you. You can, and you just, just, you can type them by number, puts them in there, yada, yada, yada. Um, And then when you do this, the app is cool because during the week it won't do anything. And I don't know when the cutoff is in terms of time, but like when your members of your ward or branch show up to church, if they open the gospel library app, Forced up near the top will be first a nice little like skeuomorphic whatever we call those, but the you know the 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 what do you call us, Jared? The plaque that has you know the thing with the numbers, the hymn number hymn. holder, the hymn number holder. Is there's got to be a technical musical term for I don't, that thing? Is. I have never heard the word skeuomorphic before. Oh, do you know what it means? No, it's it's the terminology for digital design um, for things like in apps and stuff like that, but designed to emulate real life materials. This term got real. I, I first learned it because of iPhones, because, you know, back when on iPhones, before people started doing flat design, a lot of the apps were designed to kind of prick in your mind the actual tangible thing. That's hmm. skeuomorphism. It's supposed to make you think of that. Now we're much more into flatter design and things like that. So it's, it's kind of gone out of style. Okay. Look up skeuomorphism and Johnny Ive, Apple's designer. You will be well blessed. So either way, what is the, the, the hymn number? The hymn Older. marquee, the wooden marquee for him. Maybe a marquee, a hint, just a hymn board. Maybe that's all we call it is a hymn board. Maybe that's what it is. That's what the internets are telling me right now. The I don't hy- know. Yeah. The hymn board. The hymn signal. It'll sh- so it'll show that with the numbers you've put in, but also it'll actually have the hymns right next to it. And you can click on them and it just opens up the hymn right there with the music and such. Like does it, it open up in- within the gospel library app? Or yes. Because there's a separate gospel music app. It doesn't right? open the gospel music app. And it's not, and it's designed so, it looks a little bit different. I have, I found that even when zooming out, it compresses. So you wind up with like, even in the most zoomed out, you wind up with like three bars per stanza, <laughs> like oh. to read. Whereas, so it's, it does not have the exact same view as the music app, but it is all right there in the gospel library app. You can click, if it's time to sing him, click on it. Boom. There's your hymn. Um, it was fun because I was conducting sacrament meeting and decided to throw this on the announcements. And so like I announced it, I actually held up my phone. I was like, Hey, check this thing out. And it's fun to watch the entire ward who does not know about this suddenly like look down at their phones. Um, I had to say the caveat, like we don't want you staring at your phone during sacrament meeting, but you have this tool available to you. So it's kind of cool. So we've been doing it. Um, ever since it started, you can put out the hymns too for like a year out. I know. You're not just limited to the week you're in. You can plan as far. I read that and I thought, like, who is planning? And then I don't know. Maybe it's just like, oh, you know, we know we're going to sing this at Easter or something like that. But it's still like, who? Like, I most I think (laughs) ward music uh, coordinators are like, you know, the day before going, oh, I got to let the bishopric know (laughs) what hymns I've decided we're going to sing. I'm like maybe a couple weeks out because we work with our music coordinator and I we have a spreadsheet and I put in maybe the themes for the speakers or stuff as I'm planning. I alternate 
meeting planning with the other counselor. Um, but that's it. Yeah. We're not going to go beyond that, but it's good to know you could, you know, the funny thing when you work with a lot of music planners is sometimes you see some of them just clearly like move up a number, like through the weeks, like if they're working their way through the sacrament hymns, you only notice it once you're planning it, but like week before it was, number 176 and next week is 177 and the next week is 178 and you just kind of i've definitely just per- seen yeah just cruising along board music <laughs> coordinator just like just going up you know it's like why don't we just sing all the hymns we'll just do it yeah. in order <laughs> uh so one of the other features here is general conference messages and what this means is messages uh like how we're assigned general conference talks typically from the most recent conference when you're in elders quorum or relief society um now you can go to the app and you can, is it only a prompting in the app or will it send a notification to the members? Do you remember if it says that, Jerry? I'm like, well, not actually, sure. Like, I don't know if it pushes. your quorum to say, hey, yeah, I'll push a notification and say, hey, read this. I'm button. not sure, but I know it. I mean, I know that if you open the app, it'll like, it's one of like things that, you know, you can kind of, you, and that's put, the other thing, you can design your layout, right? And that's the other update, but like, yeah, you can make it so it's just like, boom, I can see what we're doing. And I think that one only allows you to update it like two weeks in advance, which makes sense because like, which makes, yeah. Because, you know, you, you, you study one talk and then you're not going to have priesthood of society for two more weeks. So Yeah, see, so I need to get my warden gear because right now it shows us for May 14th, which is our next time we're doing it. But general conference talks have not yet been entered. I do appreciate that, though, because, um, you know, we our ward, my ward coordinates because I think there's a lot of leeway here. Like, you know, sometimes the state sure. says, hey, we suggest everybody in the state do this or whatever. But uh, in our like. But I think everyone does it differently. Anyway, in our ward, the priesthood and Relief society presidencies coordinate because they just, I think they just decided it'd be nice if everyone's reading the same thing. Uh, but like almost every, you know, every other week I have to go say, Hey, Kelsey, what are you, what are you, what are you reading for Relief society? Because like the Elders quorum, it just, they're great in so many ways, our presidency, I love them, but they've been not consistent. Don't and you so, love how well we fulfilled the stereotype like consistently. Right. But the last few weeks, I actually, I, I didn't mean to like super call them out. Like, but I, I just brought it up, you know, in the beginning of Elders Quorum a few, a few weeks ago. And it's just like, Hey, can we be better at this? And the president kind of flushed. It was like, I know I'm really bad at that. I'm so sorry. And like, since then they've been doing a yeah. good job of announcing it and letting us know at least a week ahead of time. But I'm really grateful for this feature. And that, and last week in Elders Quorum, they actually said, Hey, this is a new feature in the app and we're going to start using that and we're going to be really good and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and if the Leaf Society is putting it in, like, I think, I, I don't know. I don't know if they can put it in for both of us, but um, for both, both groups, but, but anyway, it's cool. It's cool. Yeah. And then there's also like new display options. Just, you know, you can adjust your font Customize size, a little, little more colors, text, customizations, things uh, like that. Do you remember, this was like three or four years ago, but some rogue developer uh, pushed, you know, when they did, they pushed an update for the gospel library app and you could change your icon. Oh yeah. And somebody had like put in a Lego Moroni uh, icon and it lasted for like two days. And then the church like pushed another update and it went away. (laughs) But I remember when they were like, you can customize your layout. I was like, Oh, are they bringing Lego Moroni icon back? I think we wrote an article about this, but I don't remember. Anyway, way back when I think somebody probably lost their job over that. Okay. This this happened not that long ago. This was in 2019. Okay. Yeah. It was close. Three years. The article, the article we wrote says in which church app developers embrace their inner Konami code. So, cause basically you had to do a whole like swipe up left, do a whole like thing mm-hmm. and you unlocked Easter eggs to get all sorts of different, yeah, Moroni like icons. How funny. I remember this. This is great. I know. But like, remember like two, it was only there for like two or three days and the church was yeah. like, nope. So it was obviously not sanctioned. 
Uh, bless them. They should have stuck with it. Anyway, love to hear from all of you if any of you are uh, using this new these new app features and how it's working out. Especially, like, does it make a difference in your lessons? Are people more prepared? Are they reading the talks? Be good to know. Be curious. <laughs> One thing I am curious about with this. Do we... Do you feel like the church is going to slowly abandon the gospel living app? It was much ballyhooed back when it came out. I'm not saying these are exact fits for it. You know, it's hymns, it's it's conference talks, things we don't completely find there, right. but you do find content in gospel library. But I feel like gospel library's one main feature is the circles feature, which... You, you mean gospel living, not gospel library. Gospel living, I'm yeah. sorry. Did I say gospel library the whole time? Yeah. The gospel living app, which has the circles, which... Are limited and you can't super. You can kind of customize them, and of course, a lot of people don't use well, them. Wasn't it like, also when it came when they rolled it out? Wasn't it also touted because it was like it came out? I want to say around the same time that the youth and children program changed. You know, from scouting to the new. I, I think we just call it youth and children, or children and youth or whatever. Something like, something like um, that. Yeah. But like, and so I think the other th- one of the other big things that they were trying to you know encourage all the youth who had phones to download it because it was a place where they could set and track their goals. Yes. And then, yeah, and, then, and that was part of the idea of circles. The circles was so you had a mode of communication that wasn't like text-based or email or whatever that you could just use the app and, you know, have leaders communicating with parents and, and youth and, and children. But also, uh, you know, if you were like had set a goal that you wanted your youth leader to follow up on, that was also something that was viewable and mm-hmm. interactable within those, you know, with those circles. And so, I mean, yeah, I mean, gospel living, I think, in a, for a lot of people, the, the people who are at least are aware who want to use it have been using it as sort of a rough communication app. Do you feel like it's got decent adoption? I have no idea. What I don't know. Are. I, I don't, feel like zeitgeisty. I don't get much of a feel that people are using it. It always seems pretty forced when, when I was in Virginia. Like, I, want, I know that some people were using it for communication for goal it setting. New, it was also new then. Yeah. China. And where I am in Idaho now, like I never hear anybody bring up that app. And I, I'm a, in a primary calling now, my we my wife and I and another couple we do we're over all the activity day boys, which is really fun. That's kind of fun. Yeah, but like like we use we just text and sometimes email occasionally, but it's mostly just text message and like nobody's ever said, Hey, why don't we use the gospel living act? Let's create some circles. Like I totally even forgot about it until we started talking, <laughs> about, talking it. about it right now. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't even know when the last time was because you can do things like it's got music, it has goals, thoughts. Like I get the idea behind it. I'm I'm really curious. Yeah, the goals. Like I said, yeah, I think it's supposed it was supposed to be part of like a way to implement the the goal setting, goal. youth and setting. Here's my goal: live like the word youth of wisdom. And, yeah, my youth goal. I'm going to adopt this goal. Strive to be. I'm adopting the goal. I'm going to live the word of wisdom. Hmm. I mean, it is smart because if you click on doing a goal, you can add steps to complete your goal, the areas of growth you want to touch upon, like if it's spiritual, social, physical, intellectual, the main, the four, the quadrants Mm -hmm. for like the youth program. You can choose all those things and you can set a date when to do it. Like these are good ideas. Don't know if anybody does it though. Yeah. Yeah. Anywho, um, I wanted to real quick, uh, this is not part of like technically part of the news, but it's something that's come up a couple of times now and, and it's tangentially related because we were talking about the him, the him marquee. I, I feel how related it is. Yeah. Uh, so a few weeks ago, my brother who lives in godless Southern California, uh, texted me and, and another friend of ours and said, Hey, have you guys ever heard of an impromptu choir? And we're like, what are you talking about? And he said, they just, we were in sacrament meeting and then the word, um, 
the you know the coordinator uh you know got up and said hey we're just going to have an impromptu choir and anybody who wants to can just come up and join and and it, and, and basically they just said you know, we're singing this hymn out of the hymn book and just sing the parts ah, if you want to. It's called to. a hymn book choir. My word used to do them. Okay. Okay. So you, yeah. so this, okay. So anyway, yeah. and so, yeah. but he said it was just really weird because he's like, why are you, the way it ended up turning out, it could have just been a congregational hymn. Like, why not just say, hey, we're going to sing a congregational yeah. hymn? Because yeah. <laughs> like people choose if they're going to sing in that anyway. Anyway. And I was like, well, that's really weird. And then last week in Elder's Quorum, uh, in the beginning, uh, the, one of the word music directors uh, said, by the way, in a, in a month, we're going to have, uh, you know, on this date, he announced a future date three or four weeks <laughs> away. And he said, we are going to have an impromptu choir and we'll be singing. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, by, well, by definition. Right. Okay, exactly. Sure. And he Not said, and we will be singing pedant. Joseph Smith's first prayer just out of the hymn book. Anybody who wants to can, you know, join it, blah, blah, blah. You know, almost the same thing. But, but instead of announcing it like right there in sacrament meeting, he announced it like three, three to four weeks ahead of time. And then somebody asked, Hey, so are we going to have any rehearsals? He's like, no, uh, if you want to rehearse, you can come over to my house and we can sing together or something like that. You're in a, his wife's the, uh, I think I know his wife's not the organist, but like they, they both, they, they switch off to directing the music anyway. Okay. And I just remember thinking, so first of all, it's not impromptu if you plan it and announce it three to four weeks in advance. Second of all, yeah, I mean, if you have that much time, why not? Why not have like a few like, rehearsals? Do a choir or do and it like doesn't a have to be choir. like super formal and have a fancy arrangement, but it's like, hey, here's our little, inf- maybe call it an informal choir. Maybe that's a better word than impromptu. But like, anyway, it was just like, this is really weird. And it's like, I, I remember thinking, ah, my brother's ward is so strange for doing this odd thing. And then my ward's doing it even in an even weirder it way. Change your way. And we haven't now, done one for a long a, time. A planned impromptu choir. So anyway, I we've yeah. has anybody have, it, have our listeners? Do you guys experience this or anything similar? Is it just a weird quirk of church culture in the West? I don't know. No, well, I mean, it happened out here, right? Like we had it. I haven't seen one for. I mean, our, our last time we did one was probably pre-COVID in our ward. Mm-hmm. I remember one time they did the hymn book choir, and so many members of the ward went up there. I thought the same thing. I was like, this is like like most of the ward is now on the stand singing the hymn. Why is this? This is like, just like a congregational hymn at this point. So what is, like you said, so what is the difference really? Exactly. It's fun. It gets people up and excited. I don't know. Maybe it's a good step. Just to have everybody if, stand if for the congregational hymn. Like that, which we that's... do a lot. And last week we did it, but it was to a song that had a very slow, like three, oh. four, six, eight beat. And I was like, really pumping up here, getting the blood going. Yes. Yeah, see, I like standing yes. for the congregational hymn because it's like that seventh inning stretch, and, and sacrament meeting isn't even as long as it used to be. It's, I mean, we cut it by fifteen hard. minutes, but still, it's nice, especially if you have some not as you know skilled uh, speakers. But uh, anyway, <laughs> it's by the way, I am uh, if I may a brief digression. So we had Easter, of course, and it was my month to plan. So I planned our Easter program, and I was trying to do something like just something noteworthy, something out of the box, and. Um, our program wound up, of course, you know, we had no second hour on Easter, right? And But our, our Easter program wound up running for 20 minutes over. I increased our program by 33% length on accident. Jeff, Not my fault. can I, I do ambitious. something? I, I need to do something a little unorthodox. Uh, You're going to a call? Well, my wife apparently is locked out of the house and I'm down in the basement. I need All right. Up. I need to run right. up and let her in. All right. We can hit pause. You can edit this out. I, it's not my job to edit it out anymore. I don't do that. <laughs> well... 
You just I'll, go I'll, talk. I'll be right back. I'll I will, be right back. I will vamp to the people. So let me tell all of you about the capital cities of Central Asian republics, okay? You start with Kazakhstan, everyone. Yes, Kazakhstan. The large one that you've seen there, you might have called it Kazakhstan like I did when I was a boy, which was a mistake. I recall being thrilled one when was it? Christmas of 1991, 1992. And my grandparents got me a brand new National Geographic Atlas. And the Soviet Union by then had fallen apart. And all these new countries showed up on that map. Kazakhstan fascinated me. This very large country, almost bordering Mongolia, but not quite. Almost. Well, anyway, its capital city was Almaty, close to the border with Kyrgyzstan and the mountains. But now its capital is, is Astana. It's had a bunch of other goofy names. It was even called Nur Sultan, named after the uh, boss. But it's, a, it's Astana once more, a master plan city. Haven't been myself. I hear good things. Now, elsewhere, we can move to different countries, for example. Kyrgyzstan, uh, once one of the better pseudo-democracies in the region. Its capital, of course, is Bishkek, as you all know. Tajikistan, being the interesting country that it is, only interesting because the, the Central Asian Republics, the five, were, are, four of them are Turkic, but the Tajiks are actually essentially a, um, a more Persian people. Okay, And the language they speak, Tajik, is basically essentially Farsi, more or less the same thing they speak in Afghanistan, parts of Iran, all that kind of thing. Rounding out, of course, where we're going, we've got Uzbekistan, which is populated by both Uzbeks and Tajiks, depending on where you are. But its capital is uh, Tashkent, home of the only uh, high-speed rail line in Central Asia. And finishing us up, folks, we have the wonderful world of Turkmenistan, which has such a ruler that they not only read the Quran, they have additional scripture created by their president that they can read there. And it's a good time. Sorry, uh, Jared, everyone left. So I just started briefing them on uh, just giving a nice primer on uh, just the Central Asian Republic. I was going to say, I can't believe you decided to dive into ethnogeography after I left when it's clearly this is something I'm very interested in. It's the first thing that popped in my head. I couldn't (laughs) help myself. That's what happened. So anyway, I was so uh, we can move on. But I was going to say my Easter program was like comically too long. I started to be I tried to be really ambitious. I had like some youth speakers read scriptures. I was trying to kind of set the scene for Christ's start of his ministry. We had because you can do what you want. We had a talk before we even did the sacrament, I had someone speak and give a talk like on the last supper and the nature of the sacrament. And then we did the sacrament and then we did some other talks. Some people spoke longer than needed. Cause with all that stuff, it was like, no adults, like literally give a four minute talk. This is all we need for this kind of thing. It went very long. I never heard anything, but it did crack me up. And I don't know if you were there many, many, many years ago in our old stake that we were both in. And, uh, the newish stake president at the time, I think it was his first stake conference. Mm-hmm. And I was at the Saturday evening session at the Steak Center. And we'd already gone like over two hours by that point. And he gets oh. up and you think they're going to cut it off. And he's like, all right, well, next we're going to have a special music number by so-and-so and a talk by so-and-so and a talk by so-and-so. And Danielle and her are like, oh, we're really doubling down here. We're just making like, you expect them to get up and say, well. Because so that was not the norm for his presidency. No, like, but happened. I happened. Yeah. But there, the, the previous stake president, that was definitely his norm. Yes. He was not ashamed to say, well, I've got a few more things to say, so I'm going to take this meeting 20 minutes over. So this meeting went, I mean, you might, I don't know if you remember that one. But I do. No, I know you exactly what you're talking about. It was very similar for my Easter program when it was like at the hour and they get up and like, all right, well, we're now going to have a special musical number. And then so a talk by so-and-so and I could kind of see people in the war like, wait, are you serious? Like this is still going? I don't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing. You can carry on with the show now, Jared. You don't need me to keep talking. <laughs> well, so are we going to go back to Turkmenistan? Because like, there's so much I I want to know. Um, I want to go to that. What's that thing called? The Gates of Hell? That that 
it's that pit of natural gas the soviets lit on fire and it's never gone out oh yeah it's, it's very cool looking love it so those soviets always so thoughtful of other i'm going to countries. romania in june so i'm pumped about that that's awesome that should be fun yeah no i've heard great things about romania um, I wanted yeah. to kind of do another just uh, sort of iffy segue. You had mentioned, in, you know, as you were perusing your gospel living app that you were going to set a goal to live the word of wisdom. Yeah, I wanted to really bad, but it's hard. I just ate brownies and ice cream before we started. So, you know, well, and that's, you know, that's, you know, relevant to uh, another article that this is from uh, Religion News Service, which is Jana Reese's uh, website that we often, uh, well, I, we used to often reference it back when. Uh, I believe you need to preface that with member and name only, Jana Reese. Thank you. Okay. Let's be careful about this, Jared. Um, Labels matter. Okay. Thank you. No, I, By the way, I, did, you know, did you see Jana Reese is starting some podcast with like John DeLynn? No. And who else? Oh, yes. And, I mean, uh, I saw that like Patrick Mason was going to start a... Oh, yes. It's going to be the Mormon News Weekly with hosts Patrick Mason, Jana Reese, and John DeLynn. I didn't see that John DeLynn was on that. That's interesting. I would not have linked. I could kind of see Janerys and Jondalyn, maybe, but like Patrick Mason with Jondalyn, like that seems a little odd to me. Hey, here's to their credit, they they own the domain MormonNews.com. Well, it's hard to best that. I mean, yeah. credit where credit is due. I don't know. Who, I, I don't know who. I'm going to have to see who owns that domain. This is a time to remind everyone that many years ago, when we started this show. John Dillon himself emailed us to say, hey, I've got the show. I wanted, I wanted to do a thing about like Mormon news and blah, blah, blah. And I wanted to call it This Week in Mormonism and wanted to know how you'd feel about that and blah, blah, blah. And I promise I've had this idea forever. And we were like, okay, well, no, thank you. We will be upset. That is my interaction with John Dillon. <laughs> um, also, I would just like to go on the record just saying that I, am, I do not subscribe to the public square whatever approach the of like. Public square disappoints me. It started off better, and now it's just an apologetic. Mm, it's and, and it's kind of seems like it's got some good ties to Desnet. Anyway, I do not subscribe to the Desnet slash Public Square methodology of trying to label and categorize members based on what we our perception of their okay. activity or whatever. So you mean you're saying, you're saying I shouldn't say member and name only, Jana Reese? Is that what you're, you're okay? Fine. It also it doesn't, doesn't work as well as Rhino. You can't say a Mino. <laughs> Mormon. Well, so what, member, member. I mean, Mino. Mino, should we Mormon? But rhino is a, like it's a, it's a good acronym because it's an, it sounds like an animal in the African savanna. But mino, what is that anyway? I don't know. Like a minor bird, anyway. Minor bird, it's a close thing. We're gonna start calling uh, Jack Mormons minor birds, and nobody's gonna know why. <laughs> Continue. Anyway, this has been a really fun transition into this. Uh, <laughs> we wasted like ten minutes of thought. There's a ghost, uh, a, a ghost, a guest post in. Uh, religion news service uh, by a registered nurse named Cindy Sanford. And she is uh, contending that most Latter-day Saints in the United States, she qualifies, do not follow the word of wisdom. And she's like, and it was funny because that's the hook, right? But she's like, but then she's like, no, we're not talking about coffee, tea and alcohol and tobacco. I'm talking about sugar and refined flour. And, you know, and, you know, it's interesting because I do think, I think you can definitely drive this point too hard or too far and kind of get out. Cause like really when you sit down in a temple recommend interview, it's like my understanding having briefly served in a bishopric, as we noted before, is that if, if, you know, when I'm asking somebody, do you obey the word of wisdom? And if they were to ask a clarifying question of what that means, the official line is, 
alcohol, coffee, tea, tobacco, and other harmful drugs. Now you could probably get real down in the nitty gritty and try to make an argument that refined sugar is a harmful drug. I mean, it behaves on your brain much the same way your cocaine does according to some studies. Right. But um, yeah. So like technically, technically by the letter of the law, you're not abusing the word of wisdom by eating a lot of refined sugar and flour desserts, but she's, you know, she makes some good points that like really the overall message and purpose of the word of wisdom is to help us care for our bodies and to help us live in a better quality of life. And we eat so many processed high sugar, high fructose corn syrup foods uh, that we're really kind of, we may be obeying the word of wisdom by letter, but not necessarily by spirit. And, yeah, uh, I get that. Yeah. I mean, and again, and, and, you know, and she points out that, you know, beyond the prohibitions that we usually focus on, it does talk about eating whole grains and fruits and vegetables and herbs that we should be eating meat sparingly. And uh, we don't, we don't really do that. That's not the American diet. And so, I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, part of the pun food for thought uh, and I think it's worth reading. Like I said, I think you can overstate and overemphasize some of these things, but I do definitely agree overall with this idea that, you know, we need to be careful about what we put in our bodies and we need to be mindful that uh, we have an obligation to care for ourselves. And most of us have an obligation to others as well. And if we're not in good health and if we if we're not doing our best to keep ourselves in good health, we, we could be letting down people who depend on us. Um, and, uh, you know, just take, my, care of yourself. Uh, take care of yourself. Jeff, my, why my don't one, you my, eat brownie my, my ice one, I, I like this stuff here. My one beef. Did you mention the, the, the one stat there from 2006 that said Utah Mormons were 14% more obese than non-Mormons in Utah? And I that's did actually, see that. And I raised my eyebrow. It's interesting. And it's actually it used to be worse. Ten years prior, it was 34% more likely to be obese. The one thing I worry about is she does say most Mormons are doing this. And I feel like her evidence that for most is strictly anecdotal. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily disagree from my lived experience as a Latter-day Saint, but that's also just purely anecdotal. Um, is Yeah, I mean, yeah, sugar replaces. I mean, for goodness sake, So Delicious and Swig are, are proliferating all over the Mormon corridor, as we once called it, right? literally a place where it's like how can i put more sugar into your soda and by the way would you like a sugar cookie to go with it like mm-hmm. that is the business model we absolutely overdo it on sugar i don't know if i've taken the time to notice like is my ward majority or plurality obese or not have i i i, I don't know you know it depends i mean it all varies but i agree with the general premise from what i have seen and i would love to see us take all aspects of it more seriously. I'm a terrible offender in this regard myself. hundred percent, hundred percent. You give me like homemade cookies and I have a very hard time not just going to town on them. Right. But, um, but in that sense, it is like a vice that I guess you could argue in some ways has some sort of control over my body. Cause like if there's cookies, I have a very hard time legit just saying like, I'm good. Just give me one. That's fine. No, I will go and sneak more and I will enjoy myself yeah. and blah, 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 well, blah. The other thing though is, and like you were saying, like this is not just a members of the church word of wisdom thing. This is an American thing. And it's not just an American That's thing. It, too, it's yeah. it's a developed countries thing like and you know and you know you but see we're things worse about it here than they are we are we are you know there's like remember there was that that book that came out like 15 years ago so it was like uh french women aren't fat or something like that and it's like you know it's a developed country but you know maybe you know the french are better at portion control or whatever but uh, it still is very much like a where if you live in a port place of the world where you have 
grocery stores that are always stocked, uh, chances are that they are always stocked with products that have refined, you know, ingredients in them that act like <laughs> cocaine in your brain. Uh, I listened to a podcast recently, and it was an interview with uh, an author, a, a researcher, he was a scientist named uh, Stefan Gainet. And he wrote a book in 2017 called The Hungry Brain. And his whole point was that like, our brains weren't made to process things like this. So like when you present the brain with refined flours and sugars and, you know, all sorts of these just really delectable things that are processed to the point, you know, with the point of making people crave and want them, uh, we are, you know, it's very easy to fall victim. And so that's why we're seeing more and more people going through bariatric surgery. Uh, We see the rise of, uh, you know, treatments like Ozempic, Wegovi, Munjala, I think is the other one, you know, like because people are trying to combat this brain chemistry thing. So it's, it's not yeah. just a Latter-day Saint thing. And, and I, but again, no. I think her point is like, hey, we have this word of wisdom specifically to help us care for our bodies and we're failing. But it's like, okay, I mean, good point. But American food culture is failing all of us. So a big time. And like you meant, so here's, a, I mean, um, this is a study I found a number of years ago, but I can't imagine it would have changed much since then, just based on the way society has evolved. But it showed among OECD countries, which means like a, it's an index for like how developed a country is, right? right. Um, America has back then, back then it's probably worse now, but a 36% obesity rate, which was far beyond even the worst European countries. And usually the fatter European countries are some Eastern European countries, like formerly communist ones that had histories of poor nutrition before the uh communism fell and all that uh yeah we're uh we don't walk as much because our cities aren't dense walkable cities we drive everywhere we sit around i agree it's an american thing i do wonder why it seems like i, I mean i've always assumed it's because we don't drink alcohol but you, like why does somewhere like why is there so much sugary business in utah compared to oh elsewhere? no i definitely and you know you, you were ta- we were talking earlier you know about your your rough day and you know, you mentioned that you had a brownie and some ice cream and that's how you dealt with your rough day. Like if you weren't a member of the church, you probably would have had a scotch or a brandy or something to deal with your rough day. I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure if I were not a member of the church, I'd be into dark liquor. I think that'd be my thing. Yeah, no, I think I think I'd be like a craft yeah. beer snob. Like, I feel like I that's see, my yeah. personality. I can, I can see that being. Um, but uh, no, like, and so I, I really do think that we we cope with our lack of other vices by doubling down yeah. on the sugary treat type vice. And like you said, that's not just like baked goods and ice cream, but it's like, yeah, the proliferation of soda places. We have them all over Eastern Idaho too. Mm-hmm. And I will say I, I have partaken <laughs> like there's, and it's funny cause I'll always get like a Coke zero. So, you know, that's, but then it's oh, got yeah, like fine. all these fine. pumps of like sugary syrup that go in there. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, anyway, it's, I mean, it's, it's, gall- it's hard. It's galling because I'm not a stranger to enjoying a soda, right? Like a regular Coke or Dr. Pepper. But when you look at how many grams of sugar are actually in one of those, it's insane. Yeah. It's absolutely insane. And like, no, like man, I can tell when as soon as I take my first sip, it lights up all these wonderful areas of my brain. I, I do think, I do think, so speaking about obesity in America, I would love to see a study on this. If anyone has one, because I'm sure you do. Why wouldn't you listeners of this podcast? Um, it was around what mid early mid early mid nineties when like fast food places started getting into free refills. That mm-hmm. was not a thing when I was a young young kid, and now it's very much the norm. If you want a refill on that drink, then good for you. So you get 
because they don't care. They make tons of money off of the margins on soda sales are, are ridiculous. Oh yeah. That syrup is so cheap. Yeah. And I would love to know if that, if, if there's a notable like increase in obesity since then, because we talk about other countries like in Europe, they don't do, they don't even do that really in Canada to be perfectly honest. But like in Europe, they don't do that. If you get a drink at a, at a fast food place, even you get what they give you and that's all you get. And that's it. It's over. If you were to go ask them for a refill, they'd laugh at you. They would, what are you talking about? Buy another drink then you hoser. This conversation is totally making me think about some of my favorite favorite moments from parks and recreation where they have like the child size soda and it's actually <laughs> the size like it, it, the volume Punchburger, is, Punchburger. yeah and you know, if yeah. you liquefied a and child it would fit in this this is the volume yeah. that fills the cup and the other thing is you know you're talking about uh oh yeah how we rank and it was like oh yeah wasn't one of Pawnee Indiana's old uh, mottos it was like first in friendship fourth in obesity oh yeah, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. anyway all right, all right. <clears throat> I digress. Speaking, speaking of the wasatch front at least so you might have heard the term silicone silicon slopes also potentially the silicone slopes depending on what you want you know i mean it's yeah you know you know it's uh it's utah um isn't it usually saline now that they use for breast <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is um point is uh, uh stretches of the wasatch front especially notably i'd say around point on the mountain lehigh in that area in particular uh, there's been a big tech boom there over the past few years it's part of why your utah real estate has gone up to what it is and why it's it's much more expensive than it used to be and stuff um that's a great thing for the economy people are excited about it there's an organization called silicon slopes that kind of you know there's essentially a an advocacy organization pushing what they're doing and they have a, a convention every year and and there will be well, a summit as they describe it there will be a summit in 2023 folks absolutely there will be a summit in 2023 and you know who's going to be the keynote speaker at this summit and before you say something like like the guy from google or well the guys from google or Mark Zuckerberg, or better yet, Elon Musk. Before you say that, Jared, I want you to really think about who would be the best fit for this. Um, well, first of all, not Elon Musk. No, no, it is not Elder <laughs> Stevenson, who might actually be a decent fit because he did own a significant share in Nordic Track, and that would make sense. No, everyone, Elder David A. Bednar of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as he's been introduced, will be the keynote speaker at the Silicon Slopes Summit. Okay. Um, I mean, this is nothing against anyone involved. I just, that's a, to me, at a glance, knowing Elder Benner's professional history was not one of tech. He worked in business and organizational behavior. Mostly academia is really what his background is. And then, of course, he's a, a leader in the church. And it's nice to have a dignitary of sorts. But I'm I'm trying to thread that needle. I don't I don't quite get the fit. I don't know if this is just Utah playing to Utah or or what. But um, well, it is okay. it not only like you said. Like it doesn't. I don't want to. I'm trying to. I don't want to like. I'm not here to like bash Elder Bednar. Like the no, guy had no, a very no. obviously a very fulfilling and good career for him. Uh, he's currently a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and is doing his best, you know, to be a good church leader and be a moral example. All those things, like. Nothing against the man, but he doesn't like. I don't know. Yeah, based on some of the other speakers that I, I I looked through, like the other you know highlighted speakers list, and they're all like big CEOs, and tech about innovators. You feel like, like the CEO of Delta, the co-founder right. of WordPress, Google right. Cloud CTO, and then you have David A. Bednar, Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Yeah, and so it's really odd. Like it's an odd fit, but then also on the other side of that coin is. 
he does have a role as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And so it's mm. gonna it's I think this used to be more common if you go back like twenty years to see members of the Quorum of the Twelve and like people, you know, high up in church leadership doing events like this. And, but it feels like that they've really tapered that. I, heck, even like, I remember when I was at BYU, uh, towards the beginning of my time, early 2000s, I remember attending the, you know, every year the Provo does the Provo Freedom Festival and, you know, you know as, part, as their 4th of July and there's a, yes. you know, 5K, 10K race. They do, it culminates in the Stadium of there's Fire. There's a stadium with fire. Right. Of they, fire. Where they, it's a big concert Burning and fireworks stadium. show that they Elijah, do. Elijah, the whole deal. Yeah. Right, in the LaBelle Edwards yeah. Stadium. Yeah. Uh, but then there was all, there's always a fireside as well. And when I went the first year that I went, um, uh, Richard G. Scott was the keynote speaker at that fireside. But well, that is a fireside. I mean, well, hang a, on. But then, the, and then the next year, I think it was another like I don't remember if it was an apostle. It might have been a seventy. But then after that, never again did they have like hmm. a church leadership person there. And I and I never like heard an official. But like what was kind of like gathered to you know with people I talked with was that. Um, you know, that it's like, well, this isn't really a role for an apostle to be speaking at this municipal event kind of a thing. Like, it's not a church event. It's a Provo event. I, I don't know. I mean, so it seemed like they were kind of trying to separate out like that role. He's a church leader, not a municipal or a state or a business <laughs> leader or whatever. So it's just kind of odd to me that like, especially again, there was a lot of blowback about who was it? Was it, was it Elder Stevenson that had like, it was like seated on a board of directors? Elder Stevenson was on the board of essentially the pair company of Nordic track and the church was allowing him to continue in that. Right. Role, but then, then there was a lot of blowback and then unrelated to the blowback, he stepped down from that role yeah. or, or like took an emeritus. They were going to have an IPO. They were going to have an IPO and he stood to, he stood to become a, borderline billionaire depending on how high it went from there right you know, which and the, and it seemed like you know there could be arguably some conflicts of interest with that and anyway so it just is interesting it's not, it's after not a that. conflict to have free gym equipment at the church administration building jared it's a perk, <laughs> it's a perk. Every, along with, along with like, the plastic bottles everyone is crushing combat, the combating that utah obesity <laughs> and everyone doing their in in place cross-country skiing yeah um, if you no. go to President, actually, I would not put it beyond President Nelson to be like the first church leader to have like a folding, folding treadmill and a standing desk in his office. <laughs> He's got like an uh, one of those lap pools that you know that does like the flow of water that you swim yeah. against. Yeah, he's like just embedded in the floor of his office. President Nelson's legit. He's yeah, legit. no, I just, it, I'm just saying after like that kind of people raising their eyes about like the connection between like the business community and this leader of the church, and then now a leader of the church has been asked to speak at a conference that's all about the local business community. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying, I, I don't yeah, think there's nec- there really is anything wrong with it. It's just, it just makes me go, why? You know, what, what's his role here? And It's an interesting thread. I mean, unless he, maybe he is on a church, I don't know what church committees he's on. I wish they would list those for the apostles. Like you get glimpses of it here and there. Like you kind of know who has a missionary committee and some other things. Sure. But Because uh, they mentioned something about it in their t- conference is, talk. Is he on like some kind of a, like a technology committee or anything? And the other thing with the church. Community is, outreach. Like, the, the church cares about tech. We do. But we're, we kind of sit around and we're like still like three to four years behind a lot of trends. To, to everyone's credit and the wonderful developers like they've done a lot of work to bring us up a lot faster, but we're not on the bleeding edge of tech in the church. I mean, no. we're a church first and foremost. No, and and while uh, even while they try to make advancements and improvements, they also drag their feet while they're doing it. It's it's really interesting. Well, I don't situation. I don't envy them because having spoken with people on the inside, a lot of these initiatives that come out are 
it's like it's, I mean, it's like the, the this reminds you the church is a corporation. It's literally like seventies. Remember the presidency of the seventy who swoop in and they're like, "Hey, we need this thing and we need it in four months." And they're like, "That's not how you do this." But they're like, "Well, we don't care. Give us something." And so they give you like like random half baked apps and initiatives and things because you have I wouldn't say capricious leaders, but essentially you you have general authorities who kind of want what they want and they're not, they're not, they just want something and they're not thinking it through and what it takes and all that kind of stuff. And so that slows us down at the end of the day. Right. I mean, we get winning things like the gospel library app, I think is very well developed and it's also the oldest one. And we've had a lot of time to to mature it quite a bit. Right. And same for some of the other apps. Anyway, I, no, nothing against Elder Bednar. I just don't get the fit, especially as the keynote speaker. I'm curious to see what he'll say. What, like what'll happen here? Like, will we, how much are tickets to this thing? I want to know. Are you going to go? Yes, I'm going to fly to Utah just to go to the Silicon Slope Summit. Get, get, so... your, get your press pass. <laughs> to purchase tickets, visit here. Register now. Oh, I have to sign an email just to register. Well, I, no, I'm not going to do it. They're trying to hide how much it costs for me. Mm. Anyway, we're not the only ones who are perplexed. A lot of social media. I mean, there were reactions from like faithful members who were just kind of like, okay, I don't get it. There are, of course, many in the ex-Mormon community who are about the whole thing yeah. and about the the conflation of business and church in Utah and that kind of stuff. But I mean, it's weird, oh, but whatever. Said. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, let's segue. This is a better segue. Uh, speaking of Elder Bednar, he recently uh, gave an interview uh, in which he was talking about temples, and <laughs> it was like you know overall very nice. What was the you know what was the title of this uh, article? It's the Church News. It's literally Elder uh, David R. Bednar. Oh, this oh is yeah. Good. Elder David R. Bednar on Latter-day Saint temples and the power of godliness that comes through covenant stories. No, no. There's, there's a headline somewhere else where it says the thing we're going to talk. Oh, it says it in the subheading right there. In, in the, the subheading, yeah. But yeah. So anyway, he he was, uh, you know, talking about temples and it's a really nice interview. And then, But the part that kind of caught our collective eye here uh, is that he, he – he and this is not the first time that either he or another high-level – I'm pretty sure it was him though, because he's the one who likes to like really get on these semantic horses. Um, but uh, he's like, he told us, you know, there are no small temples. Like, and he's like, and you know, and his point is to say, you know, it doesn't matter the size of the building. We're all making the same covenants. The same power is accessible to everybody, uh, whether you know, regardless of the design of the building. And and so you know, and it's interesting because you know. Literally, there are temples that are smaller than others, and some and you could be justified in referring to them as small temples because they're not large, big temples. And anyway, but he he really pushes back against using that terminology, and you know, and, and again, and I get the point he's trying to make, but it was funny because later on in the interview, he starts uh, talking about um, building multiple temples. So the the interview asks about uh, uh, mentions that President Nelson announced four temples for Mexico City. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's talking about that. And he says, so, so if we take, for example, the Mexico City, we have a very substantial substantial house of the Lord in Mexico City. But given the traffic concerns, given the distances that people travel, even if you live in Mexico City, it can take many hours to get to the temple. And you cannot build a temple large enough to do the, to address that capacity. So if you simply have fewer large temples, <laughs> and so he says large temples, which again, by logic, if there are large temples and he can acknowledge that, would there not also, Jeff, be medium and perhaps small temples. Anyway, I dare and, say there could even be average temples if you find out the average. Well, then he gives a parenthetical and says, 
Uh, I will not use small, uh, different models of temples. <laughs> Diminutive or or yeah. insubstantial temple. Let's call them insubstantial. I just kind of <laughs> chuckled because like he kind of stepped on his own toe there um, by yeah. you know saying there's no such thing as a small temple. But then he later on he's like, well, there's these large temples. Wait a minute. No, I can't say large temples. Different yeah. model, different designs. And it's like, okay, again, I get what he's trying to say. And I agree. No matter where you live, no matter what a- temple you have access to, whether it's large or small, whether it has a cafeteria and a laundry or not. I guess none of them have cafeterias anymore. No, or Yeah. Or in laundry is really going out the window too. Yeah. But, you know, whether, you know, regardless of how many ceiling rooms and how many ordinance rooms there are in your temple, or if you have a single room that is convertible between ordinance and ceiling room, it doesn't matter. All the ordinances are the same. Everyone draws upon the powers of heaven and can receive, you know, the gifts of godliness within those walls. 100% Point taken. True. But 100% on the other true. hand, there are some temples that are small. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> like if physically there, it's funny too, because I feel like the question from Sarah Jane Weaver, this feels like the kind of thing that they teed up so he could give that answer. Cause she right. says like, well, Hey, we're, we're talking about the Washington DC temple. You know, the open house was about a year ago right now. Um, a great, this sort of epic symbol on the beltway in the nation's capital for so many years, because not too long after you participated in that temple, which is so big and prominent, you were assigned to go to Guam and dedicate a temple there. And can you compare and contrast those two temples and talk to us about this idea that as we get more and more temples, they are going to be different in design and size and design like that. That's a strange question to ask in a vacuum as a journalist. Like this feels mm-hmm. like it was clearly pre-done. And they said, sure. So let me make the obvious point. There is, Oh, there's a small temple. There is no small temple. Yada, yada, yada. But I'm with you. I mean, like, what is he going to say? Well, yes, the one in Guam is smaller mm-hmm. because the mem- the people who live in Guam don't deserve the same blessings. Yeah. I mean, come on. But, but, there's, but there's ways you could say it could be like, well, it's a different thing. The, the Washington, D.C. temple, I want to use, don't want to use the word relic, but it is a symbol of a time when it was the only temple east of the Rocky Mountains in the entire right. church. And yeah, it served it, it that entire to be a, part yeah, of the big capacity. It, yeah. Huge temple for massive capacity. I mean, that's why, like, even right now that it's been rededicated, it's barely open on some days because they just don't have the need. And now the Richmond Temple is about to get dedicated. They're going to, so Philly already took a big chunk of our stakes. And then Richmond's taking our stakes. Now that new temple in Winchester, of all places, is going to take a handful of stakes away as well. And basically, the Washington, D.C. temple is going to be really just the Washington, D.C. temple. It is going to be D.C. and Maryland and Northern Virginia. And that's like all it's going to cover. And quite frankly, we probably don't need a temple that large anymore right. to do it. And that's okay. Like the, It's good because we're building more temples. And you could say, yeah, the temple is huge and it served a purpose for so many saints. And it's wonderful. We can build more temples close by, near and far. It's wonderful. We can build temples that are smaller to reach corners of the world so Latter-day Saints can have the ordinances. And that's the whole point of it. There's ways to say it, but he likes the Mm. turn of phrase. He does. This whole thing did kind of have echoes of the, like, there's no uh, gay members of the church thing that happened a handful of years ago. I mean, I don't know how you don't think of this when you see that headline. Uh, And for anyone who missed that, it was a sit down with his wife or something like, I don't remember what they were being interviewed for. Elder Bednar's point at the time he was simply reacting and saying like, look, there are no like, like that's not the first identifier you should have. He was trying to as, avoid like a, di- a divisiveness, right? He's trying to say we're trying, unified yes. as members of the church. Like so his, his first time, he, he, so there was a question. Someone said like, how can homosexual members of the church live and remain steadfast in the gospel? And this was from many years ago. This was from seven years ago. Now, um, He said, well, first, I want to change the question. There are no homosexual members of the church. We are not defined by sexual attraction. We are not defined by sexual behavior. We are sons and daughters of God, and all of us have different challenges in the flesh. 
challenge is an interesting word to use in, in this context. Simply being attracted to someone of the same gender is not a sin. So yeah, his whole point is just saying no divisiveness. We're sons and daughters of God. Let's not try to use labels to put wedges there. We could argue about whether that was like an, an a, a effective way to get that message across or not, but uh, there's echoes of this in this small temple thing. Different, uh, yeah. And again, again like I said, I, I do think he likes to get on a little bit of a semantic horse here and there and, and ride it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, there obviously. But are is it hom- is it a white horse? It's a white horse. <laughs> it is. But there obviously are homosexual members of the church, just like there are white members of the church and black members of the church, and there are members of the church who prefer the Beatles, and there. are members of the church who prefer the Rolling Stones. And we can still be united mm. under one. And there are know, temples thing. that are big and small. There are temples that have, there are <laughs> right. only one story. There are temples that are two stories. There are temples right. that have basements. There are temples that don't have yeah. basements. There are temples with two baptistries coming up. There are those that don't. Um, yeah. So another fun pivot here. This is an interesting article coming out by Trent Toon about the church's military advisory committee and how it is supporting service members and families worldwide. And overall, I think this is a cool thing to read and learn about this whole part of the church and this committee you might not know much about. I mean, there's kind of a 70 who heads it up and then it's a lot of members of the military um, who work in it. And their job is to keep tabs on the needs of, of, you know, the service men and women uh, that who are church members and advocate for them. I think that's all well and good. And the article goes into the history of the committee and kind of how it came about and the things they do. Um, I mean, I don't think I'm missing anything there. I think it's cool. It's great. It's great that this exists and there's a resource. I love learning about some of the little niche committees we have in the church and the things that they do, you know, absolutely, and how they help uh, look out for our church members worldwide. Because, of course, being in the military is a, a different career. It's challenging. It involves a lot. And having having something like the camaraderie and togetherness you get from finding fellow Latter-day Saints and then finding out you have people thinking about you in the halls of the church as well, like thinking about your situation, like that's, that's a great thing. And that's going to, I think, help you and benefit you as a member of the church and help you be able to live your faith no matter where you are. That's a great thing overall. So cool rundown of this in general. Jared and I did notice a couple of <clears throat> curious things about it though, because it would not be Jared and I doing a show if we did not pick apart random things. The article did not intend us to pick apart, but here, here we are. Um, one thing it's the <clears throat> church's military advisory committee but the military people on it it's all american military it's all american you got some advisors who are you got a couple elder you know general authorities you got some a couple of civilians but it's american military there's nothing wrong with it being american military per se but they do say part of their job is to look out for members in the armed forces around the world. And I do understand like, yes, there is the notion of American military hegemony and cultural hegemony. I understand that if you are a Latter-day Saint from Austria, there is a much smaller chance you have many in your ranks who are somehow stationed abroad in the Austrian armed forces, right? Like I get it. Like the American military is pretty pervasive. We're right. But if you go to countries but, like Brazil or Mexico or Chile or, you know, a lot of these yeah. places where there are high concentrations of Latter-day Saints, I'm sure there are a lot of LDS people serving in the military. I, I'm sure countries. it happens. So I, I do find it curious that, that we have not formally diversified that need. I know it's different because of course the needs of like American military are going to be pretty specific to the American military and that, ex- and, and that lived experience. But um, I don't know. It just, it jumped out at me. It's like, okay, this represents everybody, but like, does it? Because it seems like we're really just thinking about the U S military. They say they care about everyone globally, 
it is funny because there's a little section called Serving the Global Church, and it uses the example of Major General Mario Enrique Risco Carmen from Peru, who was a Latter-day Saint who retired from 34 years of service in the Peruvian military. Um, and it says, like, the committee serves the global church, not just, you know, members all around the world. And then it talks about this brother, uh, brother Enrique Risco Carmen here. And he says, for many years, soldiers in the Peruvian military were forced to engage in a culture of drinking and smoking. The church was not well known, and a few in the military admitted to being members. But following his baptism, Carmen found strength in connecting with other active Latter-day Saints who became like brothers, including one military leader who served as his bishop. And as members have lived their faith, they've gained the respect of others and things have gotten better and this and that. Which is a very nice few paragraphs. Very nice. All of that is well and good. But nowhere in here does it actually say that the committee did anything (laughs) for for the the saints in Peru. I mean, it doesn't say like they they reached out to the committee to like find help and guidance. Like It's just not. Yeah. And I'm curious if the writer forgot to like draw that connection or if he just put in a foreign example that didn't have a connection and chose not to call out that there was no connection to what the article was actually about. And it's like, is that the only example? I want to know what's actually going on with non-American military members. And I, I would like to know how they actually are advocating for them and how they're involved in the process. I'm right. I'm rightfully curious about that. I think that's completely Well, fair. especially since, because like, not only, we, we, another thing we noted was that it says that, and this is up towards the beginning of the article when they're like explaining what the committee does. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a, this little bulleted list and uh, this is what they do. And it's like, advise the First Presidency on challenges faced by service members globally. Okay, we don't globally again. But still, it's like, okay, they advise the First Presidency. Great. Um, and then the second one, uh, it says, um, assist with the church's military relations uh, division in training and mentoring new chaplains endorsed by the church. Good, good. Uh, then serve as liaison Oh, wait, I, did I skip You're looking something? for the prison thing? Is that what you're Yeah, doing? sorry, I totally yeah. skipped. No, it's on the first bullet. It says, yeah, what is... Oh, it's the on the... Oh, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I skipped the part. Yeah, the first bullet. So it says, uh, uh, okay, so yeah, so they're advising the first presidency, including events and conflicts worldwide. What is happening in the church's prison ministry? Then policies affecting service members, activation and retention service. <laughs> it's like in the middle of all this stuff that's like relevant to military service, they are, it mentions just real quick in passing that they are also briefing what's happening in the church's prison ministry. So do they have like, it doesn't say this, do they have some sort of stewardship or leadership over the, you know, are they over the church's prison ministry? And if so, why? Like, I, I'm really glad we have a prison ministry. My brother-in-law actually um, goes and um, teaches like a Sunday school or institute class in prison. And it's been a really fulfilling thing for him. I love that we are ministering to everyone, prisoned, and free, whatever. But why is that under the military advisory? Else. It's it's like the same logic that told Brigham Young to send all the Icelandic people to Spanish for because he thought they were Danes. I don't know. They just said, put them somewhere. It all seems like yeah. it's really, I don't know. It's, it's really odd. Um, and it's just sort of like, and then later at the very end of the article, uh, there's a quote. And again, they just kind of throw something out. And it says, uh, it's a quote from Elder Jaggi. I hope I'm saying his name right. Jagai. Jagai. Yagi. Yeah, I know the one at the very end. Yeah. He quotes King Benjamin, right? All right. And then he says, sorry, let me find it real quick. 
I don't want to make it's sure. Just the, you just scroll to the end of the article. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The okay. So he, yeah, this other doggy says, he says, Citing King Benjamin in Mosiah 2.17, he said, Every man and woman who embarks on a military career, national guard, prison or jail systems, or hospital ministry is serving God by virtue of serving others. It's like, wait a minute. So is there some stewardship over the hospital ministry as well? Like, I I don't get it. Like, like it's sort of like I think you're I don't know yeah you see that yeah like oh there's, there's, we just like, lumped oh. it in because they're all Danes or is it just sort of like we didn't th- this thing that this this ministry this service isn't big enough to have its own organization so we're just gonna stick it under this one yeah, because it might be that I mean I I think it's that uh, though we could choose to believe it's something terrible like the church sees military service and policing and incarceration and and. Um, <laughs> Because, me- because like members of the military are effectively prisoners in the U.S. <laughs> like, I don't know. Many of the our committee members have experience with military prisons, and that has helped them as they work in the state and federal prisons. You know, like we we got a bunch of people out there in uh, out there in New Pueblo, out there in uh, Cajon City in Arizona or whatever, or in sure. Colorado. I mean, you know, hanging out at all the supermax places, given time. I don't right. know. I think they just included it to include it. I don't know. Um. Yeah. Let's move on. So this this one, I don't think we okay. need to spend a lot of time on it because look at us, one hour and eight minutes already. We're doing great. We We're never so think we'll hit it. Good nope. for us. I'm very <laughs> proud. Um, so this is a, just a little blurb in the Desert News. Uh, this is uh, what one researcher calls the seismic political shift happening among young Latter Day Saints, and they link to a Substack article where uh, this uh, what's his name, uh, la la la, Ryan Burge. He's a political scientist at Eastern Illinois University, and he found some really interesting data. And it suggests that, you know, like a lot of people are saying, like, like to say and, and sort of anecdotally observe that young people are fleeing the Republican Party uh, in general in the United States. And he says, well, really, evidence is showing that that's not necessarily the case. And his data is all through the filter or lens of religious affiliation. And so he's like pointing out that there are really big exceptions to that observed trend, such as okay. uh, young black Protestants are identifying more Republican than they have in the last decade and things like that. So you're, we're seeing, you know, in some places, you know, actually some demographics are gaining in Republican numbers. But he did say the exception to that is young Latter-day Saints. And he had some interesting charts showing that, uh, you know, both with Trumpism as well as American conservatism and the Republican Party on all of those things. When you look at some like these LDS young people demographics more and more, and it's not like we're seeing a majority of people saying I'm a Democrat now, but we're seeing fewer and fewer identifying themselves with being part of the Republican Party or being conservatives or being pro-Trump. And that was super interesting. And it was a good, a good little article, but he does point out uh, at one point that the big grain of salt that we have to take all of this with is that um, we've got a really small sample size to work with when we're studying young LDS people and their political affiliations. So you really have to imagine a decent uh, margin of error because we just, you know, the, the, the size of young black Protestants sample size or, you know, you know, young Catholics, et cetera. Um, that's a lot bigger number and you can get, you can, you know, extrapolate and, and confidently feel like you're, you're observing a trend. Uh, whereas anyway, so yeah, anybody knows st- anything about statistics uh, and I know very little, but I know enough to know that sample size is important. And if you're dealing with a small one, eh, 
so read the article. It is interesting. Read the Substack article. It's great. But remember that it might not be everything that it says. <laughs> he acknowledges that. So bless him. I, I think Utah is going to go firmly purple within a, another, du- you know, I don't know. That'd 10, be interesting. Years. It might not, it might not matter with, you know, the way they draw their districts, but you know, <laughs> we're all going to hope and pray. The fourth becomes competitive again. The fourth or the first. Which was the one that had been? Uh, I think it was the first. But again, they, they, now the district like runs right. <laughs> the district is like run right. They bisect the city of Salt Lake. Also, so. so gerrymattered. Anyway, uh, <laughs> hey, earlier I was talking about Central Asia. Let's jump a little bit. Let's jump across the Caspian Sea towards the beautiful Caucasus region of the world to a land, one of the the, the so-called uh, oldest Christian nation in the world. They often they often fight with Ethiopia about this kind of thing here. Good old Armenia, folks. Former Soviet Republic of Armenia, capital Yerevan. Uh, of course, much of historic Armenia took up parts of what is now Eastern Turkey. Uh, the spiritual home for many Armenians is famed Mount Ararat across the Turkish border, visible from Yerevan, a large stratovolcano, and the uh, purported home of Noah's Ark. That is where many people believe Noah's Ark sits. Or sad. There's your, Before there's your Armenia. Now, yeah. Armenia sits in the Caucasus region, of course, which is south of the Caucasus Mountains. The other side is Russia and some Russian republics. You might have heard of places like, places like Chechnya, Dagestan, Ingushetia, right? You've heard of all these places, Kalmykia. Um, on the south side, you got Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is Shiite Muslim. Georgia is Orthodox Christian, and Armenia is Orthodox Christian. Little wedge over there. Interesting part of the world with a lot of history. And the church has sent a lot of missionaries to Armenia a lot in years. And in fact, a lot of people like my age, I've known a lot of people who went on missions to Armenia. Like when I was just, just how I've known growing up, going to college, knew a lot of folks who went on missions there. And that definitely coincided with what we saw a number of years ago when the church organized a stake in Armenia, which is super cool. I mean, when you see, I, I love seeing the first stake organized in comparatively far flung parts of the world where you don't necessarily expect that to happen. You know, I mean, like when they first organized the stake in Ukraine, that was the first one in the whole former communist bloc. That was very cool. Right now there's a stake in Hungary. There's a stake in the Czech Republic. There's a stake in Albania. Um, so Armenia has a lengthy history with the church and they organized a stake. And then about three years later, they unorganized the stake because uh, they had a lot of problems. And most of what I know about it is anecdotal, but I've heard things about, um, there were people taking offense. There are reports of members skimming some off the top, <laughs> um, more or less. And that causes some issues. And a lot of people left and they had to unorganize the stake and kind of like try to bolster the saints and, and start anew. Which, by the way, all of that is a good reminder to me of the real importance of why we do tithing the way we do. <laughs> that's yeah. why you keep the white slip and the yellow slip. And that's why you and have two people at all times. We and- have two people at all times. Because it's one thing, like, if you didn't have those records and somebody got cash, you could just take some cash. But it makes it a little bit harder if you have a lot of the paperwork. Part of that is that's the whole point, to stop fraud and things like that. Um, anyway, that was my long way of saying that Elder Ronald A. Rasband of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles traveled to Armenia to visit the saints there. I um, actually did not read in the article if he is – I don't know if he's the first uh, – leader at his level to travel to Armenia or not. I have to think somebody's been there since before then, but um, still very cool because how much would you love it? If you're a saint way out in Armenia, you have endured what they have kind of the rise and then like somewhat collapse of the church very quickly in their country. And here you have an apostle who was happy to come visit you and, and shore you guys up and help you feel loved and known from Salt Lake. And I think that's great. And he visited the saints and of course, just kind of, 
talked about that. And I appreciate that he spoke outside of his other meetings with missionaries and young adults. He spoke somewhat frankly about the fact that like there used to be a stake here and members declined and they're trying to rebuild the branches and get it all together. And Elder Rasban said, I want to say to you, if there has been anything that has offended you or hurt your feelings in the past, I hope you will forgive the church leaders and I hope you will forgive each other. Jesus Christ wishes to build up his church in Armenia and Georgia. Um, we need you brothers and sisters. We need every one of you. There's the mission. There is the Armenia Georgia mission. And so they were all there together. Another curiosity, Armenia got a stake and Georgia is also Christian and Georgia is pretty much like more democratic and more prosperous than Armenia, but weirdly it's not had much traction at all with church members. It's like Greece, mm-hmm. like just nothing goes down. There it was like a branch and it just doesn't pick up. Anyway, this is just me nerding out as a geopolitical person. I think it's uh, terrific that Elder Rasband was able to go there meet with the saints and, uh, share some apostolic love with them and help them grow. And I hope the church in Armenia can get its footing, come back to what it was, but better than ever. Let's all pray. Real quick, just before we leave this ethnogeographic portion, I just wanted to revisit something you said about sort of like the rivalry between Ethiopia and Armenia. And my understanding, and please correct me if, if I'm not correct on this, uh, is that Ethiopia identifies as the oldest Christian nation because the Coptic Christian sect is sort of the most outside of, you know, the original church organized uh, in Jerusalem, you know, as we would think of it uh, by Jesus and by you know Paul and everything. But the Coptic Christian sect, which is based out of Ethiopia, is sort of like the oldest recognized, like organized body of Christianity. Yeah. Whereas Armenia, I believe their claim to fame is that they were the first nation in the world to adopt Christianity officially as, as their state religion. religion. So I think that's why there are like there's like there's two different ways of claiming it. It's kind of like the Brazilians claiming to be first in flight versus the Wright brothers when really the Brazilian guy just uh, was really good at dirigibles, at propelled dirigibles, whereas uh-huh. the Wright brothers were like, no, we're we have heavier they than air. Yeah. Right, yeah. Anyway. But you know, I'm, so let's I'm, just yeah. agree to disagree. Yeah, fine, fine, <laughs> fine, fine. Off you go then. Fine. I just resolved the whole Ethiopian Armenian thing by saying I, let's agree to disagree. I'm good I at appreciate this. It. There we go. Uh, let's continue, though, our world tour by visiting BYU, Hawaii, where it was a fun article. I think, this, was this also from the Church News? It was. It was a good little article. And they We're talked sticking about, mostly with state-run media on this episode. That's right. That's, that's kind of our plan. <laughs> Apparently, every year, uh, BYU, Hawaii does a big culture night, which is really cool uh, because, and if you know, BYU, Hawaii, really the intent for establishing it there was not just to be a school for, I mean, there's obviously a very large uh, Polynesian population of the church, but also because it's like right out there in the middle of the Pacific, the idea was that, that you know people from all over that part of the world, whether it's Polynesia or East Asia or South Asia or Australia or, you know, wherever, like that would be a draw that you could come to a church school in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And so part of the, to recognize and celebrate that and also they were like kind of making it sound like, and also to help students combat homesickness, they do this big culture night where students can organize performances to showcase dances or songs or whatever from their home cultures. And it was really cool because as I was reading this and they were showing some cool pictures of these dances and they, you know, there's uh, students from you know China and students from different countries in Polynesia and all over the place and all their different uh, traditional costumes and everything. It reminded me of, you know, the closest thing I've ever experienced to that was at BYU Provo, 
where uh, they would do Christmas around the world. And that was a celebration of world cultures through dance. Hmm. Uh, the difference there is that it was, that was mostly, mostly a lot of white North American students who were learning folk dances and things to pay homage to and like celebrate other cultures can educate themselves and us, the, the the viewers, about that. Whereas this is actually, you know, people from those home cultures demonstrating and saying, hey, this is me. This is where I come yeah. from. And I don't know. I just cool. thought it was really cool. And I think uh, I would love uh, to someday go back to Hawaii. I've only spent a very few days there on a business trip once. I'd love to go back and uh, maybe plan it so I could go to Culture Night at BYU Hawaii, Hawaii. If you're allowed, if you're allowed to go as a non-student, I, I just sure. think it would be really cool to watch. And then you got to sneak into the PCC. I, I actually I did go to the PCC. Like I, I had like a like I think a five day business trip, and then I, I tacked on like three days uh, because I was very poor. It was my first job out of college, sure, and yeah. so I, did, I couldn't really yeah. afford to like stay an extra week in Hawaii. But I was like, I got to stay a few days because I was stuck on a Marine Corps base, uh, Kaneohe Bay. Yeah, yeah, I was just like, up there. Yeah, Which is great. Then you're not even that far up the road. Right. No, and it was beautiful because it's right on the water and everything. But still, I was like, I didn't leave the base hardly, except for like dinner late at night when we were done with our long, long well, work good. days. They have, they have a Carl's Jr. there, so it's perfect. Oh, yeah. That's exactly where we were eating. Um, no. And uh, so, yeah, anyway. So, I did one of the things I did on one of the extra three days. I, I did do the PCC. I, I rented a car and drove up to the North Shore and it was gorgeous. And then I went beautiful. to the PCC and... Loved it, but uh, yeah, love to go back, take my wife, uh, go see some really cool culture night. Anyway, good article. Check it out in the Church News. I went to the PCC uh, with Al. The only time I've been to Hawaii is when he was still at BYU-Hawaii, and I visited him, and being Al, because the PCC is right butts BYU-Hawaii. Right, yeah, it's basically, I mean. And so if you know people... You can walk around the back of the PCC and like one of his buddies just like held open the gate, like to the fence in the back. And we just walked. In. Nice. <laughs> just, oh, so when you so, say sneak into the PCC, you I meant literally, literally. mean I paid nothing. We walked in and walked around the exhibits and then, and then made our way over to the show they do and stuff. And yeah, it was great. Delightful. So let's continue our tour to the nucleus of civilization, everyone. That's right. No, not Wichita, New York City, everybody. And this kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't have a lot to say about this, but it's an article uh, at Times and Seasons called, Is There Less Crime Around the Manhattan Temple? So the author, Stephen C., wondered, like, do, do religious buildings cause a decrease in crime around it? Do they cause an increase, perhaps? You know, is there any kind of like a bubble effect that might happen? So he took all of uh, New York City's crime data since 2010, made a heat map out of it, and tried to make the case or just decide whether there's more crime around the Manhattan Temple or not. Of course, it's right by the Lincoln Center where there's a big dip in crime. And it looks like it's kind of between a couple of hot spots. The great thing is at the end of the day, he's like, really? Like, I didn't learn it. I can't tell you definitively one way or the other what there's is. The temple is wedged between two hot spot, crime hotspots. Those are also major intersections. <laughs> Now, it might be worthwhile, I think. I mean, if this one about the Manhattan Temple, which is a very urban temple, I don't know. I don't think you're going to get crime data uh, for like Hong Kong. Look at it for like Los Angeles. I don't know. The lot there is so huge, it might not matter. But it would be fun to compare this to, I don't know what other examples you have that are perfect. A lot of temples are built in bougie suburban areas where I don't yeah. think this would be as much of a thing. I don't but, know. I mean, like the only the thing that I thought of when I was reading this really funny little article where he concludes that he can't make any conclusions. Um, (laughs) That is that uh, I do know that back in like kind of like the late nineties, early zeros, um, the neighborhood around the Mesa temple was seen to be visibly deteriorating. And so, and, and crime rates and things like that did go up a little bit. I mean, it wasn't like it ever turned into like, but that was, 
a terrible area. That, that was less the temple and more it was just like, oh, it was old Mesa. I mean, right? It was just old. And yeah, but, the, right, you know, right? but again, it wasn't just that it was getting run down and seedy, but like there was, you know, a lot of times when you have like a little bit of urban or suburban deterioration like that, crime rates creep up a little bit. Yeah. Sure. Uh, and so, yeah. And there were some people I know that like felt a little unsafe going to the Mesa temple at night and things like that. I mean, I, I mean, I was just there as a missionary and you know, you're kind of fearless as a missionary. I went to a lot of neighborhoods. I probably shouldn't have gone to at night yeah. in, yeah. in South Phoenix. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't remember thinking it was all that bad, but anyway, but I know, but also the church, um, often invests heavily in communities where they have temples and, you know, famously, you know, buying up the crossroads plaza and things like yeah. that, because they, that also was getting run down in the church. I mean, you, you know, I know that a lot of people see it as sort of a capitalist for-profit move on the church's part. And I don't w- want to weigh in on that, you know, right now, but I think a lot of the motivation for that was also just, Hey, this is our home base. We want to keep our home base nice and, you know, make sure you have to go at least three of. blocks away to see anything. <laughs> <laughs> right. but no but like i get it it's kind of like the lessons from dis from uh from like disneyland in a way i mean sure. walt disney can only buy that land and and famously he absolutely hated that he didn't own the land around disneyland which to this day is not seedy by any means but it's populated by a bunch of random motels and hotels and stuff like that and he cannot control the environment to have the vibe and the atmosphere he it wanted, has expanded we, a bit you know the, the disney resort hotels are now yeah in, but, in but, but if you go to disneyland it's, i mean it's wedged right there in the middle of anaheim with sure. stuff right around it. whereas and that was some of the impetus behind the florida project and buying as much land as they could quietly so they could like control the area around it and have space and not have it be a repeat of anaheim and we could get into all kinds of stuff right now with Disney in Florida and what's going on. I was going to say, right like, the, but, there's well, some pushback we'll, on that. I will spread that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I get it. Yeah, the church, I mean, they invested in the Mesa Temple area. I mean, that's that's a huge effort right. they undertook recently. They demolished a bunch of homes, rebuilt some stuff, tried to put in some mixed-use things. And, yeah, we try to protect the area around our buildings. I'm trying to think of those other ones. Like, what's the area like around the Idaho Falls Temple? You live close to there. It's a, I mean, I live very close. I, I can... Uh, when the, when the leaves are off the trees, I, I can see through one of my windows. I can see the temple spire. So, like you know, it's like cool. I get to walk there in about a little less than ten minutes. So, okay, um, it is definitely an older neighborhood. Yeah, I don't know that the church is investing in it, but a lot of people are. Like businesses, okay. like there's been uh, in the last several years a big a push to revitalize downtown Idaho Falls. And that's not only happening with we're seeing you know new businesses come in and fix things up and start these great little independent shops and restaurants and things like that, but also like the house that we bought uh, was purchased by uh, you know an investor renovator, and you know our house is eighty years old, but they totally gutted it and and you know rebuilt it from the studs in, and uh, it's a nice it's a nice house. It feels the inside it feels like a new home. Um, even though in the outside it has the, the, all the charm and character of an 80 year old home. Uh-huh. Uh, but then you're seeing a lot of that around the, in the area around the temple. And it's interesting as you walk or drive through our neighborhood, it's really mixed right now. There's old houses seem a little run down, seem a little beat up. Uh, and there's newer places that have been renovated and, or just kept up well during the years. But I, like I said, I don't think the church is necessarily investing uh, in the area, but the city is, and and and, and individual investors are, and, and they're hoping to to kind of okay. revitalize the it, saints, and make it nice. The saints there have enough faith to do it on their own; they don't need the church to swoop. <laughs> I guess. I mean, and I wonder if that's the thing. I, I know. I wonder yeah. if the church and things like that does kind of hold off and say, "Well, you know, if we need to, we'll come in and we'll invest and try to make this area nice." But you know, let's see if 
the free market takes care of her. As the free I, I, market takes care of all things in the long run. So yeah, well, it's interesting. I'm trying to think about like older temples and ones that have needed <clears throat> some kind of a like rehabilitation in the area around. Salt Lake, oh, they're yeah. always gonna they're always gonna overprotect. <clears throat> Mace is a good example. Ogden, they tore down the temple and rebuilt it to redo that whole area around it. So that's a good example. Um, I'm thinking, but then a lot of the other older ones. I mean, I don't know how the area is around the St. George Temple. I think it's mostly fine. I think so. I mean, and that's another okay. like area that's had been heavily invested in because so many people are retiring there mm-hmm. or whatever. Like St. George has boomed a lot, and so I don't think they're at risk at this point of like not having people interested in keeping the area nice so no it's fine because then you deal with a lot of the other older ones i mean like you know logan the cities around it manti there's not a ton there that the church has no. tried to the church did famously years ago they bought one of the cross streets there and there was a big deal because people used to protest during the pageant on this oh. one public street and now the church owns it so they can't and now there's no pageant either but um yeah, it's it's a good effort. You know, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, but I think, you know, first and foremost. Oh my like, gosh, what is this next to the St. George Temple? Are these buildings or is this a sanitation plant? I don't know what's happening here. Hmm. Sorry. You usually don't see the angle with the with that in, in the Sorry. picture. No, I was just going to say, uh, again, as I, I love to make these tenuous segues, but more than just the areas around the temple, the church is obviously very interested in renovating and keeping up the temples themselves. Uh, Columbus, Ohio, which... I believe is a, a small-ish, a, a diminutive, a lesser than the larger temples. It's a Hinckley era mini temple. Right. It, it, it's, uh, it was one of the early Hinckley era mini temples. Um, anyway, it has just finished being renovated. On Monday, they, had, they started their open house, which is running at least this week, I think another week. And so that, that was just another thing that just popped up in the church news. Not, nothing huge. Uh, or earth shaking about it. It's just definitely not huge. It's a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But Columbus, Ohio, it's a, yeah. If you live in the Columbus area and you want to bring non-members or whoever to the temple, now's a good time. And of course this, this, this is another case where it's not as drastically done, but they took a, uh, a Hinckley era mini temple and have essentially rebuilt it. Well, I think there were a lot of lessons learned because like I said, that was one of the early ones. And I think they've kind of learned some lessons about how to build a good flow and a good functionality for these, uh, not as large temples. Um, and so they probably, yeah, we're just like, you know what, this is, it doesn't work as well. Since we're renovating it, let's reformat it a little bit to something. Yeah, this one looks like, yeah. We went to the Richmond open house too a couple weeks ago. That was fun. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful building. That's it exciting. It felt so chill compared to DC. I mm. mean, because the DC open house was just a complete zoo. It was great. It was wonderful, but it was a ton of people. They were just, it was like a conga line just going through the whole building, like nonstop. Like you barely had time to pause and actually appreciate what was my my big takeaway from it is we went with some friends of ours who were not members, and if Danielle and I had not been there, like to explain to them what it was, they would have like picked up nothing that was happening in the temple at all because they don't take yeah. you on guided tours with a docent of sorts who tells oh, you about it. They just, have, they just have signs put up, and you can ask questions if you want. But it was so busy. Richmond, on the other hand, it was like so chill. We we were like two hours late from our reservations. They didn't care. They just had us park our car next to the steak center and just. How do you feel? Like I, I feel like a lot of the. Um... One thing I really like, even though in some ways temple shape has gotten more generic, there are like these like smaller like considerations of design that try to, they do try to make it fit. And you know, in Richmond, I mean, is an area that's famous for some of its old churches, like the church yeah. where Patrick Henry did his 
you know, give me liberty or give me death speeches there in Richmond and stuff. So how do you okay. feel they did with uh, making the temple kind of fit the vernacular architectural style of the area? Does it fit well? Does it have a good genteel southernness to it? Well, well I'm not, Richmond's more, more of an industrial city than people realize, but uh, yeah, I think they did a good job with that. It's got the colonial vibe, but they, they I think went the extra mile to kind of really sell it and make it fit in there. It still looks like has the the look of a modern, a contemporary Latter-day That's Saint cool. temple, and you wouldn't really mistake it. Mm-hmm. But I like some of the little touches they put on it. <clears throat> and they packed four ordinance rooms in that thing, too, which actually impressed me, considering yeah. it's only about 30,000 square feet. And it felt smaller on the inside than it seems on the outside. But it was very nice. Uh, yeah, the four rooms was interesting because no, no progression at all, unlike some other places where you do the two rooms prior to the celestial room. This is just everything in the one room. Which also means no mural. That's the only downside. I like it when you've got the two rooms because the first room, they've had they've had murals that kind of reflect the history and stuff of the area. Like my my home, yeah. Newport Beach Temple, is very cool because the first room you're in has this amazing mural of of jagged, rocky Pacific cliffs and tide pools and stuff, and it's really neat. But there's nothing wrong with that. It was great, very beautiful building, nicely put together, and it was really fun to go there. I'm very psyched. First temple in Virginia. Uh, and an, an enormous blessing for the saints throughout the Commonwealth who have been assigned to D.C. And now if you live either in Hampton Roads or Richmond or Charlottesville or anywhere else, you've got a temple much, much closer to you than you did before. Yeah, so that's terrific. great. Hey, let's. I know we're at an hour and a half, but I, I think it's worth th- yeah, this last thing. No one's thing. listening anymore. It's over. Well, if you stayed this long, here's a treat. So this is a it's a treat from our friends at By Common Consent. Uh, but actually, it was a really great short little article called "Be a Neighbor" by David. I don't know if it's Huston or Houston, uh, but I really Houston. liked it. No, it's H U S T O N. Okay, fine. Uh, and anyway, he talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is in my top three parables. I love it. And um, one thing that he points out is that the way that the lawyer, you know, gets Jesus into this parable is, you know, he's asking questions and the, and you can see by the, in his analysis is saying, well, like this lawyer is obviously trying to, and he says, when he says, who is my neighbor? He wants Jesus to just to define an in-group and an out-group. He's looking outward, like who are mm-hmm. the neighbors that I have, to, that I have, am required to love? And then, and then, you know, by implication, that would also tell you the neighbors you don't have to love. And then the way that Jesus finishes the story, he asks a question and says, which one was the neighbor to the person who was injured? And rather than acknowledging it was a Samaritan, he just says, he who showed mercy. And so he, he reverses it. And instead of saying, who do I have to look outward and recognize as my neighbors and therefore some treat kindly or with love and some not? Instead, Jesus turns it around and says, who do you have to be a neighbor to? And the answer is everyone. You are supposed to be the neighbor that the Samaritan was in the story. And I really loved that point. And I think it's a really good insight that in Jesus was such a master of teaching and a master of just turning things on their head uh, in order to teach a really profound lesson. It reminded me just real quick, if you'll indulge me, I, I, you, some of you may know uh, a few years ago, the Maxwell Institute out of BYU published a series of uh, brief theological introductions to the Book of Mormon. If you're watching on video, I'm holding up the one for the Book of Helaman, which was written by Kimberly Matheson Berkey. And I remember listening to an interview with her uh, before this volume came out, and she was talking about the people, the Nephites, in the Book of Helaman. And she emphasizes this idea that this article talks about, that like 
a lot of times we ask the question looking outward, like, well, who do I have to love or who do I have to be better than? Or who do mm-hmm. I, you know, who, who am I allowed to look down on? Or, you know, who's, who am I need to be more righteous than or whatever. And she talks about how in, at one point in, in Helaman, the Nephites begin to get penitent, but then as they're reflecting on their sins, they start saying, yeah, we were wicked like the Lamanites. And it's like, they can't conceive of like their own wickedness outside of comparison to these people that they've been at war with for generations. And uh, she says, they seem willing to introspect, but every time they get close to really seeing something about themselves that needs to change, they take a hard left turn and start vilifying the Lamanites for being wicked and for being corrupt. Their own moral feelings can't hold their attention. What does hold their attention is how much they hate the other guy. And into this, Mormon weaves an editorial reflection to describe the ways that God's spirit cannot be with them because they're not focused on themselves and their own moral improvement. They're focused on what's wrong with everyone else. And she says that's a theme uh, in the Book of Mormon, but especially in the Book of Helaman, that, you know, instead of focusing on ourselves and noticing, and she said for them, noticing the secret combinations taking root in their midst. If they had, if if she said, if I had to name one theme for the Book of Helaman, it would be this. Uh, this is why it comes up so often. Mormon seems to be diagnosing the problem with the Nephites as a problem of sight. They are looking in the wrong places. And as a result, they are setting themselves up for destruction. And I think that's a good reminder in conjunction with this article from By Common Consent that we, and it, all of us do it, that we want to compare ourselves or think, uh, who, uh, who, who, who am I supposed to love? Or who am I supposed to serve? Or who are my brothers? Or who are, you know, wh- what's my group? And instead of like looking outward like that, you say, well, how do I make myself the kind of person that Jesus is teaching and not worry about, you know, where to draw lines, but focus on, am I becoming a good Samaritan? Am I becoming a good neighbor? Am I becoming somebody who can evaluate myself mm-hmm. and my own sins without comparing myself to others? And if so, I think that's how we know we're on the right track. Anyway, I just really like that. And I highly recommend these awesome little books. They're fantastic. And they, they're all really short. And they're I really good. I want to get good. those. I haven't uh, seen those. I need to get them. I, it's funny, again, living in eastern Idaho, um, you know, they released them one at a time. But when once all, once all of them were out, they started selling a box set. And it was a little pricey. But uh, I showed up at Costco one day and they were <laughs> selling box sets of a Maxwell Institute <laughs> publication at the Eastern, at the Idaho Falls Costco. And it was like 20% cheaper than what you could get anywhere else. So I oh, picked, picked up the set. Yeah. All right. Pick one up for me if they sell it again. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Well. There, it's great little stuff. It gives you some good insights and help you with your, with your personal study of the Book of Mormon. Anyway, I love this. Uh, and that's a good reminder to all of us. Be a neighbor, be the kind of neighbor that Jesus was illustrating in the parable. That's great. I have nothing to add. Wonderful sentiment. Thank you for sharing it. And we come in at an hour 37, or actually maybe a little shorter because there might be some editing. Who knows? Kirk can do whatever he wants. Who want. knows? Podcast. Everyone let me, let me know if you got to hear about Central Asia or not. Yeah. Find out. Do you know Same. the difference between Turkmenistan and the other countries around it? Let or, us know in the or comments. Or with Tajikistan and the others for that matter. Exactly. Absolutely. We wouldn't even start talking about Uyghurs in China or other things. Well, folks, it's been a delight. Nice to be back with you. I'll Thank you for inviting us point. into your ears. We hope this has been aurally pleasurable for you. Um, you're welcome. And uh, go to thisweekinmormons.com. I believe, of course, you can go to patreon.com slash thisweekinmormons. And Kurt does like legitimately put up, you know, like stuff for the patrons, which I never did. So kudos to you, Kurt, and go sign up there, folks. Support the show. It ain't free to do this kind of stuff. So make it happen. And uh, 
appreciate you taking the time to listen in. Jared, it's been great seeing you, buddy. It's been great seeing you too. Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure. Maybe we'll talk to you guys again sometime in the, the summer or something like that. So until then, that's Jared. I'm Jeff. This has been This Week in Mormons. Be well, be holy, be happy, and you are not morons. <laughs> <laughs>